this is the Under Pressure Outdoors Podcast. Outdoors in partnership with Warriors Quest is brought to you by Martin Archery, the number one archery company. Martin Archery combines leading edge modern technology with innovative design to give serious bow hunters and target archers what they demand. Axis Camera Arms for a camera arm that offers a smooth, full range of motion without restriction, lightweight, easy to pack, the name speaks for itself the Axis Revolution. Conquest Sense for more than 15 years, Conquest Sense has been selling premium hunting sense to hunters around the country. Bojax Inc., the best designed archery dampening system. Simmons Optics, everything you need, nothing you don't. Ozonics, undetectable, undeniable. Dry shod waterproof footwear, the most wearable rubber boot. Veteran innovative products, VIP broadheads. The first and only scalpel sharp broadhead with dual spring variable cutting width suspension for superior penetration. Elevated safety systems. Rancho Rio Lindo in Uvalde, Texas. Piney Woods Hunting Lodge in Eufaula, Alabama. Here it is. Five weeks. Outdoorsman of a Bygone Era Part 5. The Lawman. Over the past five weeks, you've heard from outdoorsmen from many different backgrounds in the outdoors community. You've heard stories of running dogs for deer in the Ocala National Forest. Tales of a time long past duck hunting the swamps of Louisiana in a hand-carved P-Row. Accounts of days yielding unmanageable amounts of trout in Tampa Bay, and funny anecdotes of success and failure in the deer stand. But there is a character who is ever present in these stories, hidden in the background scenery with a watchful eye, and in the stories omitted from memory when unintentional mistakes were made, and outright cursed by some who sought only to do wrong. The man I am referring to is the game warden. Known by many different slang names, from Mr. Green Jeans to Possum Cop, the game warden, on a broad spectrum, is responsible for protection of individual states' natural resources, including game and fish. The game warden works long and lonely hours and performs often thankless duties to ensure the safety and well-being of hunters, fishermen, outdoors enthusiasts, and game alike. By enforcing the game and environmental laws set before them by the state. This week, we are excited to be joined by retired lieutenant for Florida Fish and Wildlife Commission, FWC, and author of the books Backcountry Lawman and Bad Guys, Bullets, and Boat Chases, Mr. Bob H. Lee. Mr. Lee was born in 1953 and grew up on the shores of a small lake in the community of Lutz, 13 miles north of Tampa. In June of 1975, he graduated from the University of South Florida with a Bachelor of Arts degree in Criminal Justice and moved to Putnam County in 1977 for his first duty assignment as a St. Johns River Water Patrol Officer with the then Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. He received promotion to lieutenant in 1989 and became the Land Patrol Supervisor over Putnam, St. Johns, and Flagler Counties until he retired in 2007 after a 30-year career in wildlife law enforcement. So without further ado, Mr. Bob H. Lee. 
Mr. Lee, tell, a little, tell us a little bit about yourself and the story behind why you wanted to become a game warden. Sure, sure, Will. But first, let me just say uh, how appreciative I am of uh, you're inviting me on Under Pressure Outdoors. This is truly an honor. So, um, I, I think I have to go back uh, to the age of nine. I know you already mentioned in your opening that um, I, was, uh, I was raised on a small lake in Lutz, which is north of Tampa, now basically a suburb, but back then it was fairly rural. And uh, I'm an only child. And so that's kind of important to this story, my story throughout becoming a game warden because I had very few friends uh, to play with, so I was left to my own devices for amusement. In any case, um, I really enjoyed swimming. I tried to go out in the lake probably every day during the summer, and on the weekends my dad would join me. So one morning my father and I were out swimming um, just off the shore, and he's out a little farther than me, and he, and he, and he yells, run, run, an alligator just bit me. And so I'm kind of startled, and I turn, I see my dad, who was a large man, he's coming through the water, looks like the, the prow of a battleship coming at me, and he kind of runs by me and gets me by one arm and drags me up to the shore. And I'm, of course, you know, I'm standing there, I'm wondering, you know, I got it, you know, if, it, if it's bleeding, I want to see it at the age of nine. So I said, where did it bite you? And so he raises his heel up, and you can see where the, the gator's one tooth nipped him, and you could see the I could see the blood streaming down it. And so my dad said, well, just let's just wait a couple minutes and see if he surfaces. And so sure enough, after about five minutes, the seven-foot gator surfaced and, and looked at us with what I can only describe as keen disappointment. Now, my dad was a rule follower. He wasn't the type, type of guy who's going to pick up the gun and go shoot the alligator. He wanted to do things by the letter of the law, so to speak. So he went up and called what was then the Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission. Two nights later, a couple of officers come out right after dark. They're, um, they come up in a sedan. They're towing a small John boat, maybe a 9.9 kicker on it. And, uh, and I distinctly remember seeing them get out in those brown and tan uniforms and uh, wearing these basket weave uh, belt, uh, belts with the 357 Magnum pearl handle, handled revolvers. Made quite an impression. In any case, they proceed to tell my father that um, they're going to go out into the lake, and uh, what they're going to do, they're going to kill every gator between six and eight feet, which was basically the protocol then, and it's kind of the protocol now, it, in order to get the one at seven feet. And then they invited us to sit on the shoreline and watch. Well, I thought, well, this is a big time for me because not much ever happened out there. So we sit on a bench. They put the boat in, never crank the engine, just using a paddle. One guy's got a six-fold headlamp. The other, other fella has a 30-30 lever-action rifle. They hadn't gone 30 feet and shined. You could see those orange, little orange orbs. Um, one guy trains the light. The other guy pulls the trigger. Boom. And I distinctly remember, even now, seeing that skull cap lift up. And just for a millisecond, I could see the white bone glisten before that gator sunk. They pulled it in with a long-handled gaff, and by midnight they killed three gators. They came back to the bank, skinned the gators, and before they left, <clears throat> one of the officers walked over to me and said, Son, hold out your hand. And I did, and he dropped in those three empty 30-30 shell casings. Well, these shell casings had no value. They're mere pieces of machine brass. But to me, at the age of nine, uh, they, they meant everything, and I, 
and that that memory stuck inside my brain like a postage stamp. And so as I got older and, and knew I wanted to get into law enforcement, well, I took advantage of that when I was at the University of South Florida, and I did an internship for 12 weeks with them, which eventually led to my employment as a game warden. So that's that's really what piqued my interest in becoming a game warden, I believe. You know, having read one of your two books, it seems like you had uh, quite a few adventures over your career. Yes, I, I've had a, I've had a few. I've been I've been fortunate. So, uh, yeah, so I had an opportunity to solve that problem uh, of a lack of adventure. But but I wanted to add one more thing because I, I mentioned I was an only child. So when you when I first came up here to the St. John's River in 1977. You know, I, I get a, a fairly small boat with a big engine to chase these outlaw commercial fishermen. I mean, you are just out there on your own. I mean, there is nobody to help. The radios don't work half the time. You don't have any backup. If I had to call for help, it would take somebody an hour or more to get to me. So, But being alone really suited me. I mean, I can be back in the deepest swamp, wade through it at night by myself, don't mind it, love it anything you can possibly imagine and and so it just it it it, i guess it just fit me well um and i i never had a problem with being alone out there by myself dark evening daytime thunderstorms it it didn't matter so you talk about some of the technology you had uh, when you were a game warden and you talk about the radio not working half the time and the when you read the book the the different boats you used over your uh, career, um, what was one of the biggest leaps in technology you used as a game warden during your career? Oh, that's an easy one. That would be the cell phone. And and here's why it, it made such a difference, <clears throat> not just for me, but for all of us, is that prior to the cell phone, if um, uh, uh, we get a complaint of an ongoing wildlife crime, uh, let, let's just say somebody has killed a deer. We'll just use that as an example, out of season. And so dispatch has got the caller on the phone. Now, now my dispatch is in Ocala. That, that would be 90 miles from where, where, where I'm at, up here in uh, Putnam County in northeast Florida. And, uh, and so she's got the caller on the phone. I've got to ask her the question that she needs to ask the caller. He's got in turn to relay it to her. She'd give it back to me. It was just a, a ball of knotted twine. It it just was not very efficient. <clears throat> and and if the caller hung up or couldn't stay on the line, then she had to call him back. But with the cell phone, oh, my, she gives me the complainant's phone number. I call him while I'm driving to the scene. And now I'm asking all the questions I need to ask. You know, you know what kind of vehicle are they in? Do you have the tag number? You know, how many times did they shoot? You know, uh, what are they wearing? I mean... Are they, have they left yet? Have they picked up the deal? And all these things that, that will enable me to be properly prepared mentally and also put me in the correct geographic location, you know. And if they turn to leave on a, let's just say there's a, a dirt road, which they did, the, which way did they leave? Did they go north? Did they go south? These things are important because that tells me where I need to head them off, you see. And so <clears throat> before, we just didn't have that. And the other thing that cell phones did after a couple of years when people really, you know, it really got out and everybody started to have them, 
cut down tremendously on our search and rescues. Oh my goodness. Because before, um, let's say where I was at here in the St. John's River, when I first came here in 77, there were over 30 fish camps. All these fish camps uh, have a, a boat rental business. And invariably, two to three times a week when I was off the river, I get calls to go out and rescue somebody. Most of the time they're out of gas or they're broke down. Well, when those boaters finally had a cell phone, they would just call the fish camp owner and the fish camp owner would go out and, you know, give them a tank of gas. That's what it amounted to most of the times. And occasionally you had something pretty serious with somebody, you know, flipped a boat or had a crash and, and there was a fatality. But generally that's, that was the reason that they uh, couldn't come back in. So, so it was a big aid to us in, uh, in that regard too. So the cell phone really, I mean, that's a pretty awesome tool. Oh, it's tremendous. Yeah. Oh, it, it, uh, I could have, oh, I could have made a lot more rest if, if we'd had the cell phones we do now back in 77. Oh, There's so no doubt. No they, doubt. They've uh, also helped people incriminate themselves <clears throat> as far well, as social media and all the other stuff yeah. like that goes. Right, right. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to hold off of that because I think we may have an opportunity to talk about that a little bit later also on the social media thing. And, um, but yes, and uh, so yeah, so that that would be the uh, one piece of equipment that made made a lot of difference. And um, the the other thing would be the piece of equipment that I probably wish I had had would throughout my career was a cell phone, but not because it was a cell phone, but because of the camera on the cell phone. Oh my gosh. Oh, the pictures we could have talked for uh, taken for evidentiary reasons. Oh, it's, it's just a, tr it would have been a tremendous tool. And not only that, I would love to have had a GoPro camera for some of my boat chases. Now that would have been, that would have been a film worth watching. So, oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. So, there's that too. So it's, you know, of course, the cell phone today. Everybody, I mean, it's your, like your. Everybody does everything off the cell phone. I mean, there's almost nothing you can't do with it. It's a, a tremendously wonderful tool. Yeah, I mean, we started this podcast almost a year ago on with, with nothing yeah. more than a cell phone. Yeah. Exactly. Recording exactly. on a cell and phone. I, and I just had to cut a video for a, a virtual book festival. They, they one of the required this Sunshine State Book Festival will be up in January 30th, but. But anyway, one of the requirements was that you cut a quality video, and I'd never really done that. Now, it took me a couple of days. I had made a lot of mistakes, but finally got it, and they approved it. So, but I did it off of, a, you know, a, a, an iPhone and a tripod, and I set it all up, and it, it seemed to work fine. So, yeah, you can do a lot. And of course, a lot of these YouTubers, they're just using a cell phone or a GoPro. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So. One of my favorite questions I've asked everyone in this series um, has been, do you think the rapidly advancing technology available, and in this case to today's game wardens, has yes. helped or hindered them? Overall, it's, it's helped. Um, the only way that I can think of that it, it well, be two things that is hindered hindered then is that now let's just say you have somebody illegally hunting deer at night we call it fire hunting here in florida there's a reason for that um well it kind of goes back historically when the indians used to hunt by a, a pine torch um, or a piece of lighter wood that was lit but 
But we here in Florida, we call it fire hunting, which is going out at night and illegally shooting a deer with the use of a gun and light at night. And so if you if you've got some really savvy hunters, uh, they won't drive down the road and shine a Cuban spotlight. That's a little too easy to get caught. So the better way to do it is to drop somebody off and drop them off in the pasture and just let them walk on with a six-fold headline. Well, they have that walkie-talkie. I mean, this guy can go back to his house now um, 30 miles away, and he can wait till 4 or 5 in the morning. The guy calls him and says, hey, I'm ready to go. I've got the deer butcher. I got in a backpack and picked me up at my, the corner fence post on this pasture at, you know, at 415. Flash your lights once and I'll step out, you know. And so you can't beat that. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, very, that's very difficult. Um, the other thing is earlier in my career, um, we used to have quite a bit of illegal dog hunting. Dog hunting would be hunters who were chasing deer with dogs. But in, in this case, they would do it unlawfully. I'm mostly shooting doe deer. And so they would have CB radios. Well, we would also have CB scanners. And so we could scan them and we could track them and uh, kind of figure out what, what they had done, what they had killed, even though they're talking in code. And then we, if you know the geographic area well enough and some of the slang they're using, uh, we, we, can, we can go right to them and arrest them. But now, no, no, they're way beyond CB radios. Uh, they got some really fancy stuff out there that I don't think we can scan. Uh, but, you know, there's not that much illegal dog hunting going on like it was at one time. Now, going back to the positives, uh, we have people that are dedicated, some of our investigators are dedicated eight hours a day to sift through Facebook for these dummies that will post photographs yeah. of their fresh illegal kills. It's a wonderful thing. And, uh, and so they'll... They'll see the photo. They'll, they'll break in. The however, however they can go into these Facebook sites, they have a way of doing it. They'll find out who they are, and then they'll just go to their residence, knock on the door, show them a photograph with them in the photo. Hey, is this you? Yeah, you know. So, and and, and those guys would be, um, you know, kind of like the shooting the ducks in the bathtub type of poacher. But still, uh, you can do a lot of good with that. Modern technology when it comes to DNA, a wonderful tool. You know, I've, I've had, I've made DNA cases here recently. <clears throat> there was a big bust made in Sumter County, probably in the last year, where they, the guy had a gator farm, um, and he had, he, 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 it didn't add upright from the number of gators he had. He, you know, he, he claimed that he had, all well, the gators that he had had laid the eggs, and he had hatched these eggs out, but our investigators believed that he was lying. Well, so what they did was they went in and they drained the pond down to where it was muck. And so about four or five of our guys went in and hand-wrestled these alligators, about 80 of them, catching them by hand, out of them, took DNA samples, and mashed it up to the hatchlings to see if those gators were in the right lineage, if you will. And they were not. So what the guy had done, he'd gone out and stolen eggs unlawfully, or he had bought hatchlings illegally for somebody else. The, hatch, the illegal hatchling business is a big business. It's big money, and there's a lot of money. To, and, and uh, you know, peop, Some people, if they know what they're doing, um, can really nail it. And in my second book, Bad Guys, Bullets, and Boat Chases, I write about a fella on Lake Apopka who that particular year took 10,000 alligator hatchlings unlawfully. 
Now he's a very, very good poacher. And I go in, I go through this one particular case where we have a fantastic officer who manages to catch him. And then that was the first half of the story. The second half is our investigators come in uh, to the jail and they're doing a half, half hour videotaped interview with him, which I had access to. And I take the nuggets from that interview and I write about that interview, how they broke him down and got him to admit it. And so that's kind of an interesting story. And at that time, the price, illegal price for hashlings was $8 a hashling. So he had made $80,000 that year. And when you look at the guy, his two front teeth, all you see are pencil stubs. That's all he's got left of them. Uh, now the price of hashlings about two years ago went up to 50 something dollars a piece. Holy cow. And then it's dropped back down to about 20 something dollars a piece. This is the black market I'm talking about. Right. And so, and so we have people that are, we have undercover officers, we have plain clothes, we have strictly deep undercover and they're working on cases like this a lot of people don't know it but about once a year if you pay attention you'll see a splash in the news about it you know million dollar bust on illegal gator, har gator harvesting or hashlings or eggs and what they're doing they're really stealing from the state because when you, you they're allowed to go out and harvest these alligator eggs lawfully in certain places with a biologist but they have to pay the state Okay, they have to pay a state a fee to do this, they being the legal gator farms. Okay, so probably I've gone on enough on that topic, but th there's there's some examples for you about the negatives and the positives for, uh, for technology. So if you get on your website, uh, yes. I believe with bobhlee.com, correct? Cor correct. Um, you have an <laughs> entire section of it dedicated to man tracking. Correct. How was that class developed, and what role did you play in teaching it? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, about halfway through my career, uh, which put me at about the 15-year mark, and with, this would be mid-1990s probably, uh, I took an interest in tracking more than just what I had done on my own. And I, I had heard... Uh, that they were bringing in some expert trackers to the academy. Our academy is in Gaston County, which is just uh, one county kind of to the northwest from Leon County in Tallahassee. And so uh, just so happens uh, that one of the guys who had started working for me earlier on the river uh, ended up getting promoted being a, a captain up at the academy. And so he and I talked, and he said, yeah, we got this guy from Kentucky coming in. You know, he's a hot shot, and, you know, he's a silver star tunnel rat from Vietnam and he, he shot a meth head coming off a mountain up in Kentucky and I said well I got to meet this guy I want to see what he's going to do for y'all you know so and he he was actually going to teach a class and so so that's kind of where it started so I went on up there and spent I don't know two two or three days with him he was very very good and what I liked about him the most was he didn't pretend like he walked on water he was he was um <laughs> his head was dipped in reality and, and where I'm coming from on this, a lot of these pe people out here who all these uh, great trackers, you know, they got these names and they got these big classes that you teach them. And, and they'll always tell you, um, if you look hard enough, you'll see it because it's always there. Always there being some sort of sign left behind by somebody passing. They got it half right. If you, it's, if somebody goes through a, patch of woods, vegetation, whatever, they have left something behind. But no, you may not be able to actually physically see it. No, absolutely not. 
And that's what a lot of people won't admit. Now, when we taught our classes, you know, our, our guys are very experienced and we, oftentimes we'd lose the track, you pick the track back up, you lose the track, sometimes you lose it forever, but that's just the reality of track. You don't always stay on the track, particularly here in Florida. When, when we're talking about following foot impressions, because in Florida in particular, we do two kinds of track. We track tire tracks and we track foot impressions. Now tracking tire tracks, now Florida, <laughs> Boy, oh boy, well, it, it, it really lends itself to it because most of these roads, particularly when you get up in the north Florida panhandle, they're all sandy or they're kind of clay-based if you go farther north. And so it gives you an opportunity to really read what has happened the night before or maybe even a day or two before. And most of us get to the point we can read tire signing. You can read the Sunday newspaper. I can go down a dirt road at 6 o'clock on a, a Sunday morning. I can tell you everything that happened the night before. I can tell you if a drunk went down the road. I can tell you if it's somebody out there, uh, some kids out there just spinning tires for a, a, a Saturday night adventure, if you will. Um, I can tell you if somebody's hunting with the headlights of the vehicle. I can tell you if somebody's hunting with a Cuban spotlight. I can, you know, and we can we check turnaround sign. You can see if somebody's dropped off, uh, pick something up. All of this you get to learn, and you also get to, you know, if you think somebody has been hunting. There are certain ways, I'm not going to get too far in the weeds, but there's certain ways you can almost, you can kind of age that tire track and you can kind of figure out what time of night they were there. Not always, but sometimes you can. And that will tell you what time to come back and maybe set up on them, hide your truck, sit outside of that road and wait for them. And I've made cases just like that. It's not just me. I mean, a lot of us have. So, so there's the tire tracking. But when you get to the foot impressions, uh, it's, a, it's, it's tough now. When they step off that sand road and they step into the woods in Florida and this heavily vegetated state, if they haven't come and gone several times, like to a deer stand, if it's just a one-time-only track, it is a lot of times not easy. And uh, so anyway, but from my, about my, I'll go back to the Kentucky game warden. From my interest in him, I watched him. Um, I was asked to kind of take on the class. It was a lot to take on. Um, and we had somebody else in our outfit that had been doing it, but he retired. I have to explain that, too. And so I decided to take it on. They sent me and some other guys to Tennessee. There's a group that taught man tracking up there. We, spent a, we went up there uh, two different years, mainly to kind of see how they did it. I wouldn't say they were the best trackers in the world. Some of them were really good, but most of them didn't do a lot unless they went up there to teach the course. It was kind of a funny thing. But, but we, most important to us, we got to see how they taught it and they, they, how they broke it down and the different, um, the different things that they did. It's not just tracking. There's, there's observation skill games, and there's also an in-classroom presentation you put on. Um, and so we kind of modeled that, and then we changed it uh, to fit Florida is what we did. And so, so I basically managed the class for the last 10 years of my career, and we, I've taught many, many classes. I've taught FBI. I've taught SWAT. I've been in Louisiana. I mean, Shreveport. So it's, it's a fun time, and the recruits really enjoy it because this comes at the very end of the academy, and they are just whooped. They are tired. They've been studying. 
they've heard theory. They've heard everything. They've done uh, defensive tactics. They've done firearms. They, they just want to get outside and do something. So when our class comes along, we, we oblige them, and they really enjoy it. You know, and we try to nurture them along because you've got, you know, you've got, we, we teach it uh, on, with the understanding that nobody in that class knows anything. Now, they may not, that may not be the case. We'll always have some expert trackers in there. Normally, these are guys that are dog hunting up in North Florida, raising the woods. They're really good, but then we'll have somebody from the city that does not know anything. And so that's why we have to start from the basis that nobody knows, you know, what, anything about tracking. So, but I enjoyed the course, and um, so that's kind of how I got into it. And even after I retired for, oh, quite a few years, I went up at least once a year to the academy or, or helped out with a local SWAT team. But now, after the last couple of years, I've kind of gone on to greener pastures. I've decided I'm 66 now. So, I mean, a lot of these folks in the recruit class could probably be my grandkids, you know. So I think I'll, I think I'll let somebody else do it now. <laughs> so over these last five weeks, my – favorite part of this whole thing has been the stories involved uh, and, and just hearing about times from the past and the good, the bad, the ugly, the funny, it's all rolled up in there. And having read your book, I know you are full of some some pretty good stories. Oh, yeah. You, you just want me to go with it? I Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. So... Well, all right. Well, let's let's talk about uh, chapter three in my first book, which is which is backcountry lawman. Um, <laughs> that was what I call a uh, a defining experience for me. Will I'm an eight month rookie, alone at night, water patrol in the Oklawaha River. Now, for your listeners who are not familiar with the Oklawaha River. I would suggest it would make uh, uh, a great backdrop for a Tarzan movie. That's the Oklawaha River. It's bordered on the south by the Ocala National Forest, on the north by Caravel Wildlife Management Area. And nobody lives on this one stretch of the river I'm patrolling, which is the lower end of it from Robin Dam to St. John's River, about a 10-mile stretch. So in this particular night, I was out after, mainly after monkey fishermen, which are we may get into that later. They're not catching monkeys. Let's hear stuff a slang term we use um, in, the, in the St. John's River Valley, but what they're really doing is, doing is out illegally electrocuting catfish. And these are, uh, these are outlaw commercial fishermen, S- small boats, big engines. Uh, and so I had begun to drift downstream about uh, good dark, which would be about 9 o'clock in the summer months. You can only do this. They can only electrocute fish in the summer. Once the temperature, water temperature drops below 70 degrees, it doesn't work. In any case... So I'm drifting along, and I'm in my patrol boat, which is a, uh, it's a long, narrow boat uh, with, a, with a low gunwale on it. It's called a skipjack, not like the skipjacks in Maryland, but we called it skipjacks. Also, uh, it was made by Old Timer, who has since gone out of business. And there, what it is is a commercial fishing vessel. And it kind of has a high, sharp-nosed bow like a Viking boat almost, but sits real low at the gunnels all the way back to the transom. So at the transom, you've only got about five inches of freeboard. And so what I did was I just uh, I went up there and and then I begun my drift. But I, I decided I was not going to turn my engine off. I was just going to listen and, uh, and and go with the current and to see if I could hear any boats approaching. Because if they're if they were monkey fishing, they'll they'll run that boat for a little bit and they'll shut it down. 
to run it and shut it down. They're shutting it down to listen for us. And also in the Okawaha, you've got numerous side creeks that kind of parallel it and a little arteries that feed in and out of it. And all of these arteries, many of them are navigable. And they like to get back in there too. And so I was listening for them to be back in a side creek. And then if I, if I heard one, a boat back there, then I tried to figure out how to get to them. And so I've been drifting for about three hours, which brought me up to, to midnight. And the way I was doing it, I was standing up in the bow of the boat. There's a very little platform there that's raised above the deck. And I had an eight-foot oar, and I was using that oar to kind of steer and guide me around log jams and, 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 and kind of semi-fallen trees. And so I'd kind of let you know, guide the boat around the tips of these trees and back into the main current and, and any deadhead logs and and, it, and everything else. Now, this is a, uh, a moonless night, so it's dark of you know it's dark of the moon, and uh, but a little bit of starlight is still filtering through. About midnight, <clears throat> I hear a faint trickle of water, and that disturbed me. It's the same, and all your listeners have heard the same thing. It's just like them laying in bed, and they hear that leaky faucet, and you know this, you know you know that aggravating sound because you've got to get up and turn that faucet off. That's what I heard. I look out in front of me, I can't see anything. I turn around, I look at the stern, and I can just see a little bit of the white of the cowling. It was a 200-horsepower Johnson I had on, uh, had on the transom. But on the interior of the boat, it was jet black. Now, a few minutes before, about 30 minutes before, the last time I turned to look, I could actually see the compartments. I said, oh, my. And I stepped off that upper deck in the bow, and I stepped into cap, cap deep water. Immediately, I went to the stern, kneeled down, and there was two inches of water uh, the, in, in, at the transom. The boat was flooded, and there was only two inches left until the water flooded over the transom cap. And once it did that, it would meet the river water, the boat would sink. This boat had very little flotation in it. And so I figured immediately that the drain plug had popped out, and I was right. I stuck my finger in the drain plug hole. It was out. I jammed another finger in there trying to wedge it in to try to slow the the water going out and immediately I leaned way over flipped the switch on the bell trump turned it on starts pumping water out great and I think to myself okay this is really good I uh, all I have to do is remain still don't jiggle the boat and in about 20 minutes all the water will be pumped out this will be my secret my peers won't know my supervisor won't know I'm good to go 30 seconds later I hear this tremendous roar the hose had come off the bilge pump now the pumps bouncing all around and, and underneath the water and I've only got two hands and I really need to find that hose and jam it back on the pump but I couldn't do it there wasn't enough time by now the water is about an inch or half an inch from going over the transom I pull my fingers out of the drain pull and I go jump in the driver's seat crank the engine just full power my hope was I was just a, I just wanted to shove the bow up onto the bank the river here is only about 30 yards wide. All I managed to do after about five seconds, the, the, the engine caught, was to push the stern, the transom, underneath the water. And it flooded out the engine, and that was it. And so now the bow's pointed up toward the stars. And I had drifted up underneath the tree branch, and I was over a 30-foot hole. First thing I thought of, i got to save the paperwork. And so, because, you know, I got a sergeant, and we got cameras and everything. And so even then, I was, you know, thinking like a senior civil servant. I uh, make my way up to the middle storage compartment, get the briefcase out, 
climb up to the bow, grab the branch, get my bow line, I tie the boat off, then I tie the briefcase off. So that way I could come back and find my boat in the briefcase. And at that time, I started thinking about, you know, what my choices were, and I hear this huge gush of air rush out from underneath the cowling, and that was it. The bow went up, the boat sank, I zipped my life vest up, bailed out with a six-gallon gas can. And there, so there I am, like a big green sea turtle floating down the river. And so <clears throat> I there were so many alligators in that river. This river had not been hunted for 20 years. It's not like it is now. You know, they started hunting gators back in the mid-'80s. That, that river now has been thinned out, particularly the big gators. But back then, if you turn your light on any straightaway, you would see 30, 40 pairs of eyes. You know, some of them are monsters, true behemoths, you know, 13-foot gators. That will not be unusual in there. So that's where I was at. But still, being, you know, uh, 24 years old, I was hell-bent on, on self-rescue. And um, so I drifted for about an hour, and everything was going pretty well. And um, until I hear this tremendous splash in front of me, and it was a bull gator that launched off the bank right in front of me. I had startled him, apparently. And I could not see the alligator. I could only hear the splash, and then comes the wake. Probably a foot and a half wake comes over me in the gas can. And I can, to this day, I can still remember that little metal chain in the metal gas can going ping, ping, ping against the side of it, against the side of that can when that those waves kind of washed over me from that gator. And it was that moment in time that uh, I told myself, Bob Lee, this was not the right thing to do. <laughs> and that that's the moment I knew I had made a bad error. But by this time in my journey, I only had about another quarter mile to go, and I knew I'd be down at the only two hard soil landings on the Okawaha River. That's Reedy's Bluff and Davenport. Well, I drifted past Reedy's Bluff, didn't see anybody there or hear anybody, but I could hear somebody at Davenport. I could hear the music. Drifted on into Davenport, and there's a little sandy beach there, and it kind of showed up, had a little pearly glow in the starlight. And I, and I kind of swam up there. I parked my gas can, and there's a little path. And we went up to a campsite, a primitive campsite. And I go up there, and there's a big bonfire going. There's four guys. Now, keep, keep in mind, I'm soaked. I, I haven't shed my gun belt. I haven't shed my boots. I haven't shed anything. Um, and I walk up there, and I'm dripping water. I'm standing right, right in front of the fire, right where they can see me. But they are so plastered, Will. They are so plastered. They don't even know I'm standing there. I clear my throat, introduce myself, tell them, tell them what had happened. And, and the one guy says, and they caught him out, he hit you're a game warden. Said, and after I just got finished explaining who I was, I said, that's correct. And he pauses <laughs> for a minute. And he says, uh, you know what? And he raises his beer. And I said, no, what? And he says, and he says, begins with an S, ends with T, happens. I'll bleep it out. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that pretty well sums it up, you know. And so that was a defining moment for me. It would take way too long to tell about the other half of the story, me getting out of there and getting a ride into Salt Springs and calling my sergeant and, and so forth. But that, uh, that was a learning experience. And what I learned was this. 
here's the reason why the boat sank. I had a lever type plug on the outside of the transom. As I was going around these log jams on all these branches, a branch apparently grabbed that lever plug and pulled it out. So henceforth, my learning experience was to always put the plug on the inside, at least in that particular kind of boat. So there you go. There's one example. Yeah, that, that's a good lesson to be learned. I've had my own experiences, uh, not with losing the plug, but just plain old forgetting yeah. the plug. <laughs> right, right. Uh, and we've talked about that before. I've done it yeah. once, and I, I learned my lesson the first time. I run oh, the, yeah. I run the Okawaha quite often in my boat, and I do it with, with all the trees that are across it. I always worry, because my plugs have to go on the outside, and I always worry. Oh. I'm like, God. Oh, does it really? Wow. Yes, sir, yeah. It's a... Uh, a uh, like a, a mud boat, so oh, it, okay. and it has a, yeah. a hunt deck, so both plugs go in the back of the hunt deck on the outside. So I'm you're like, not oh, you're so. in the uh, you're in the upper portion of the Okawaha, not the lower portion. Yeah, we put in right there by the springs at the uh, the boat. What's it, the boat club off of uh, Forty? Okay. Yeah, yeah. You're up there by Eureka. Yes. Sir. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah, so you, you kind of know what I'm talking about. And uh, it's, a, it's a gnarly river, but particularly gnarly downstream from Robin Dam, the section I'm talking about. It is an obstacle course. Always has been. Uh, and I was up there not too long ago and took a friend for a boat ride. And it, you know what? It's still gnarly, man. you got to really pay attention uh, when you're driving that creek, uh, daytime or and more particularly at night. So. So I know several times in your book, uh, you mentioned working with another officer, Officer yes. Gator Banks. Yes. And I don't want you to give away the whole book. Um, oh, I can, I can, I can tell it. I'll tell whatever you want. That's fine. Well, one story in particular with him, uh, I was laughing so hard. My wife asked me what was so funny <laughs> when I was reading the book. Uh, and that was when he performed the temperature check on the poached yeah. rail. Yes. So, so first of all, uh, for your listeners, this is this is a type of hunting that not a whole lot of people do. So that has to be explained. You just so uh, what we're talking about is hunting marsh hens. I say that slowly. Two words: marsh hens. If you say it fast, or at least if I say it fast, fast, everybody thinks it's Martians. But no, it's marsh hens. What they really are are clapper rails. And they're a reclusive bird who stay in the, uh, like to hang out in the Spartina grass, particularly around the St. Augustine area in the intercoastal. And uh, they're called clap, they're, they're, the species is a clapper rail. There's several different types of rails, but the clapper rail is predominantly the one they hunt here. And the limit is 15 a day. And the season begins September 1st every year. And it runs till, I think, sometime in November. I'd have to check now. But And so what happens is in September and October, it's the time of year when we have astronomical high tides. You know, the moon pulls that tide up the highest. And then, of course, you have nor'easters, and you might have a hurricane offshore. For this particular story, we did. We had a hurricane about 100, 150 miles offshore. And uh, we knew that, that was the time to go after illegal marsh hen hunters. Now, Gator, oh gosh, I don't know if i got enough time to tell you about Gator, but for your listeners, let me just put it to you this way. Gator, um, Gator's daddy was a professional gator hunter in the 50s, 
Um, his mother was pregnant. His daddy had just killed an 11-foot alligator when her water broke. She was in the boat with him. He rushed her to the hospital. Before they could get inside, she gave birth to Gator in the truck with an 11-foot alligator in the back. Thus, his nickname, Gator Banks. Uh, and he, his personality and his <laughs> everything about him, that's, that's, that's Gator. I mean, he's, um, he, he's one of a kind. And he was raised in St. Augustine. He, he was raised marsh hen hunting. And so he, he had kind of schooled me in it, how to work these folks. And we actually ended up going out and doing some marsh hen hunting, which you even learn more, more if you actually go out and do it, you know. And it is a hoot. I mean, it's, it's a blast. But you get really nasty doing it. Um, so anyway, on this one particular day, we're up north of St. Augustine. And, um, and we're, in, we're in a patrol truck. And everything is flooded. The roads are flooded with salt water. I'm in my truck, but we're pushing through, and we stop every now and then to listen. And eventually we can hear off in the far distance to the north, pop, 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 Somebody's just wrecking marshes, just shooting the fool out of them. And sometimes these boys, they take a case of shells out with them. I mean, they were serious about it. And so we came up to an old commercial fish house, old Crabber's fish house. And his wife comes out and uh, asks what we're doing. And, and I tell him, well, uh, you know, we're checking Martian hunters. Well, he's out there today. He's out there shooting hens. Well, we're just going to sit here and wait. If it's all right, well, that will be fine. And so we did. And we kind of had our truck hit around one side of the fish house where when they came in with the boat, they had a 24-foot Carolina skiff. Uh, when they came in to, to dock the boat, they couldn't see us. And so they come around the corner, and we meet him, Gator and I, and uh, they have a crab box full of marsh hens and gator counts them at 62. There are four of them, 15 apiece, two over the limit. That's not a big deal. We're not going to write them a ticket on that. And uh, however, Gator and I heard um, the uh, compressor running for a cooler in the fish house. Now, you look at this fish house, to look at it from the outside, you wouldn't think there's anything running in it, but there was. That means, you know, at least one cooler is in operation. So I asked the uh, I asked the fellow I think I called him Sonny in the book I asked Sonny uh, I said um, what you got in the cooler and he said oh I got a couple hogs in there I said well you mind if we have a look and right then his eyes darted to the side and come right back to him right then I thought ah I think there's something really interesting in that cooler so we go around and he opens the cooler door and and we go in we prop it open with a concrete block I've 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 always been of the great, my greatest fear of anything in this job was always being locked inside a cooler by a commercial fisherman. Don't ask me why, but I, I've checked a lot of coolers, a lot of freezers, and you do it by yourself, and you never let them come in behind. You always have them go in front of you. That's something I've always, I've always done. So I, I made sure we propped that door open. And uh, anyway, we go in there. There's the two hogs. In one corner, there's a crab box. And Gator goes over and drags it up underneath. There's a single light bulb with a string on. We turn it on, and sure enough, it's filled with Martian. And so we asked Sonny, I said, well, what's going on? You told us you'd only kill this box of Martians you come in with. He said, that's right. This box was from the day before. I said, really? And so um, he says, yeah, yeah, you know, I can have, we can have our possession limit, you know, which is true. You can have two days bag limit. It's called a possession limit. If indeed they had killed them the day before. 
So Gator's sitting there looking at that box for a minute, and I could see the wheels turning. And he and I had done a lot together as far as interviewing people. We had, we 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 kind of could read each other, and he kind of looked at me for a second and sending me kind of a special signal. He said, "Bob, yeah, you ready to clock me? You ready to time me?" I said, "Sure." I didn't know exactly what he was going to do, but I said I just went along for the ride. I went, you know. I, uh, brought the stopwatch on my digital watch. I said, I'm ready. He said, well, okay. He sticks, his, he sticks a hand in there, goes into the middle of the box, which would be the warmest bird, pulls it out, and proceeds to ram one big forefinger down the anal cavity. All the guts and everything are pouring out. He said, okay, go. And by this time, Sonny's just raising hell. He's just screaming, what are you doing? What are you doing? I said, I said, Sonny, this is very scientific. I said, I have sent, I have personally sent Gator off to a special school uh, for US by, uh, that's taught by U.S. Fish and Wildlife in order to do temperature checks and uh, time of death on Martians. What? He tells me. Nah, nah, it's true, Sonny. Just just go, just take the ride here. And so after 30 seconds, Gator says, stop. Now someone know Gator asked me when 30 seconds up to tell him. That's why I said, stop. He pulls it out, you know, and, and, and waves it under his nose so he get a good whiff. He said, Sonny, this bird was killed today. He's, and Sonny's just, his mouth is just gaping open. And and he, at that point, he just didn't know what to say. I said, it's true, Sonny. And Gator says, look, you stick your hand in any of those boxes. All those birds are warm, Sonny. You killed them today. And so at that point, he says, well, and then, I, then finally I said, I only have one question for you, Sonny. You know, did you kill these birds today? And, of course, he broke down and finally told us yes. So that that was our that was our story with the Martians, and that was uh, I guess you would call it improvisation. So so there you go. But uh, I and I write about more about Gator in the book. I think actually he's got his own chapter, and then he's on another chapter with me on a boat chase. So he's an interesting character, very authentic person. Uh, there's nobody else I know of like Gator. He seems like it, and. Yeah. You know, you brought up boat chases, and uh, I know there was uh, a gentleman. I would say, I, I would say, it's almost safe to say, during your time as game warden, was somewhat of your arch nemesis, uh, but but turned halfway to a friend after retirement. That that's that's a good way to, to sum it up. Yes, and his uh, name is. Go ahead. So his his name is Roger Gunner. So I kind of got a paint a little bit of a picture for your listeners here. Um, the guy was born 150 years too late. If I were to sum him up in a single sound bite, I would ask you to imagine a cross between a modern-day Daniel Boone and a fictional crocodile Dundee. That's Roger Gunner. Um, he's very cunning, calculating, uh, add in a good dose of paranoia, He's got a Ph.D. in the outdoors, uh, but only an eighth-grade education. Uh, he uh, was he's a former 82nd Airborne paratrooper, deep-sea diver, outlaw commercial fisherman, deer poacher. His favorite hobby is underwater uh, wrestling alligators. Uh, he's a deadhead logger. And more recently, he spent three seasons on the reality-based TV show The Accident until that show was finally taken off the air back in 2016. So he's, he, too, uh, is a very authentic uh, character. 
And so Roger basically, and, I, and I'm loath to admit this, but I'll do it anyway because it's, it's just it's the truth. He, he, he ran rings around us. I swear to goodness he did. And uh, he, he got caught so seldom. And when he did, the judges all loved Roger. You know, they, 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 did, they didn't give him much. Uh, but he, very shrewd individual. And when, so, so I have to say this too. Toward the end of my career, I knew I was going to write this book, Backcountry Lawman. And I knew that Roger was going to be in it. But I needed to interview him. I had to interview him. And at first I thought, well, I'll just write a story. Because at that time I was writing stories for magazines. I said, I'll just write a story on Roger for a magazine. And so about five years before I I retired, I saw him one one day at the boat ramp. And he always wore camouflage every day. Old bought big, maybe six six one, a big bald headed guy, you know, uh, uh, a redhead originally, and uh, and he'll be wearing rubber boots. And I see him at the boat ramp up at Robin Dam. I explain to him what I want, and he tells me, and, and it's kind of a low, raspy growl. Ain't no way, cat. He calls everybody cat. That way, they, that way he doesn't have to remember their names. Very efficient. Uh, and uh, he said, and then he says, I got too many secrets. I said, well, that's just fine. Six months go by, I see him at the bait shop. I go ahead, I have another go at him. Nope, I'm not going to do it. Well, the years went on. Kept telling me no, kept telling me no. Finally, wife comes home one day, a month before I'm going to retire. She says, you need to go up at the school board. My wife is a school teacher. And uh, she worked at that time, she worked at the administration office for the Putnam County School District. And Sharon Gunter, Roger's wife, worked there. Go up and talk to Sharon about Roger and, and the story. I said, okay. And the short of it was, Sharon told me that she wanted me to write a story. His kids wanted me to write a story. His grandkids wanted me to write a story. As it turns out, Roger was the only one who didn't want me to write a story. I got him on the phone one more time after that. And finally broke him down. He, and he finally said, okay, you can interview me, but only if you've officially retired. So about a month after I retired, which was September 30th, 2007, I went over to his house, and I ended up spending four days there uh, interviewing him with a digital recorder. And and what I did was I took the nuggets from those interviews, and I weaved them in the story I tell about Roger. There are four chapters in the book about Roger. And he is, without a doubt, one of the reasons why the, I think the book has done so well is people are just riveted by his character. I mean, there's just just very few people out there uh, like him so but anyway that's that's roger and and i'll i'll say this finally about him too uh, is that um when i did that first day's interview with him before i could even get the first question out one of the first things he told me was the favorite thing he liked to do of all the poaching he's ever done and he's done it all he said was monkey fishing he said, I'd rather go out there and juice those fish than anything. He says, I can remember me sitting in the bar, and I'd have a good-looking blonde on one side and one on the other, and me drinking a beer, and I'd get to thinking about those fish coming up, you know, electrocuting those fish, and them just jumping and leaping all over the surface, me dipping those fish. I had to go right then. I had to go right then. i just leave those broads right there. Now, i take my beer with me, but I had to go. And that's Roger. So, so what... What are some of the stories you've got with Roger? 
Well, it's the the one story that I tell. I'm not going to give up the ending to this one, but I'll, I'll tell you this: it was a, it was a, it ended up being a hellish boat chase. But on this particular story, it's night chase on the St. John's River. I think it's chapter 11 in the book. Um, Gator and I are out there. We've got a tip that Roger's out. He's monkey fishing. He has a very fast boat. He's got a 235 Yamaha on a, uh, basically an eight, 18 foot old timer, same kind of boat I had told you about earlier. And we know he's out on the river somewhere north of Palaka. We're set up there, and um, Gator and I are talking. It's 2.30 in the morning. It's a dark night. We look at the horizon both ways, and you can tell somebody's monkey fishing because they have to shine a light into the water, and when it does, it, it reflects straight back up. So the, so the lights kind of dance in a very peculiar fashion, but if you're, if, if you're a game warden, you can recognize it. You know what that individual is doing. He could be 10 miles away and just spot it. But anyway, we never just see any lights. And we are right off the mouth of Rice Creek, which is five miles north of Palaka on the river. And so I tell Gator, I said, listen here. I said, um, I said, uh, you know, what happens if Roger's up Rice Creek? Now, we knew this boat and trailer were in Rice Creek, but we also knew he'd never bring the electric shocking device back to the ramp. He's going to hide it along in the swamp somewhere. But I told Gator, what happens if he's up the creek? He can come back to the boat trailer. We'll never see him. So we decided somebody's going to go up there and look for him. That would be me. And this is the part that almost got me killed. Seriously, not the boat chase. And so when you go after somebody like Roger, you don't just run up there on a plane with bright spotlight. That doesn't work because he's shutting his engine off and on. What you do is you eye the black. Quarter mile shut down. Quarter mile shut down. Don't ever turn a light on. And so, gosh, I spent like two and a half hours doing this till I went, made it up to the Iron Dam. There's an Iron Dam there. You can't go any farther up Rice Creek. I knew he wasn't in the creek. Now, this is a very narrow, Rice Creek is a very na- narrow water body, uh, water body. The Corps Engineers does not clean anything out of it. It is nasty. Now, it's got all sorts of semi-sunken logs in it, treetops, deadheads, stobs, branches, everything when I came out of there, uh, I was flying. And I was in a little, ba- by this time I was in a little blazer bass boat, 17 feet with a 150 on it. It would really scoot. And it would handle curves well. Well, when I had driven up that creek, one of the techniques I use is I say, if you stay in the middle of the creek and you don't hit anything as you're idling up it, you can tear out of there on a full plane as long as you stay in the middle of the creek and you won't have any problems. Well, I tore out of there, and I was probably hitting it around 45 in some of these curves, and they're very, very tight. Because now it's about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I know Roger's fixing to come. Gator's going to get in a boat chase without me, and I just didn't want to miss out on the boat chase. And so I come around one curve, and when I did, I swung outside of the middle of the channel just a little bit. And when that happened, uh, oh, my gosh. Uh, a lot of a lot of things. It, it went south quick, and what happened was, I hit the root ball of a 90 foot long submerged cypress tree, oh. dead on. And when I hit it, before I went underwater, I could just see the tip of the some branches come up and vibrating, and and then I went and I went, the boat rolled over, rolled over more than 90 degrees, probably about 110 degrees. I went underneath the water completely. Ripped my headlamp off, and because I was shining, I was I was running a headlamp, and and now I only have time for one brief thought, 
And that thought was that if I roll all the way over, I will be shredded like a piece of cheese against this log because the, the boat was scooting right along the edge of the tree. It was kind of the tree was kind of guiding it, the, the starboard side of the hull. And I was completely under the water. The boat, the engine was under the water. And what I'm telling you happened in probably a second, second and a half. And before I knew it, the bow had hit the branches at the at the top, what would be the top of the tree, and somehow flipped the boat back over upright in the position it should be in. And before I knew it, I was on the opposite shore beach, just like that. And it all happened, like I said, a second here. And and I'm looking around. I'm completely soaked. My boat is completely full of water. All the wells are open. They are full of water. I've got hundreds of gallons of water in the boat. And uh, I thought, oh, my goodness, that was close. And so I pulled the, I have a wire on my headlamp. I pulled it back in. I flipped the switch. I said, I'll be darned. It still works. And because uh, I had an aircraft landing lamp mounted on this, on this hard hat. And so then I opened the bilge wells, and I looked, and both batteries on the water, uh, and I cranked the engine just a little bit, and it cranks, I shut it off. I said, well, all right, I'm just going to bilge it out. I'll pump it out. By, by this time, I had learned from that first boat sinking, if you recall, about the bilge pump. I now had two huge bilge pumps that were uh, bolted into the bottom of the hull, and the hoses were attached with contacts in that. So when I turned those two pumps on, I was pumping some serious water. And then after 15, 20 minutes, it was bailed out, and off I went and got up with Gator. 15 minutes later, here comes Roger, just a dark streak in the night, and boom, we are on. So there's there's one there's one story, and that story didn't get into the book. Um, and there's, there's some reasons, writing reasons for it, which I'm not going to go into. But anyway, it's, some, it's something fun to share with them. So what was probably your most memorable experience or story over your 30-year career as game warden gosh oh i don't know i had i i had a lot of fun times uh you know there, there's a lot of boredom in between too i mean i write about the exciting things and in the second book of course i cherry pick a lot of stories from other officers from one end of the state to the other um you know one of the things i remember is that the night i told you about when i almost rolled over on that log now that was a close one will if that had happened, I'd be a dead man. There's no doubt about it. Um, and, and so, but these are the types of things that uh, the, the, most people, when they think about game wars or anybody in law enforcement, they always think about, well, poachers have guns and, and that's dangerous. Well, yes, it is. But game wars seem to manage, they find very good and unique ways of killing themselves. Really, honestly, killing themselves. And they've done it numerous times. Uh, without even a poacher being around, and it's a lot of it has to do with running at night, running blacked out, which which we've curtailed a lot now for a variety of reasons. But uh, I, I don't know. I just had a, it was. I, I think I'm very lucky to have had this job. I've talked, you know, I, I when the first book came out and then the second book, I've done over 200 talks from one end of Florida to the other, met a lot of people, and. Occasionally, you know, I'll have somebody come up to me, like at a civic club up in Jacksonville a while back, before pre-COVID. And uh, the guy came up, and he was a very, I mean, you could tell, he, he made, the guy made a lot of money. You know, he says, you should be very happy. You had a career that you really enjoyed. And that's all he said, but I knew what he was saying. What he was telling me was that, yes, I make a lot of money, 
but I don't really enjoy it that much. And I've had numerous people come up and tell me that. And so, and so while I never made a lot of money as a game warden, but I, I, I did enjoy it. And I enjoyed it for the freedom, you know, and, and it's not like other law enforcement. If you go to, if you're a sheriff's deputy or a police officer, yeah, you might be in a squad car by yourself, but there is a sergeant watching or listening to everything that you do and, and is likely to call you up and question you on, on, on a, lot of the, a lot of what you do, on the stops, your decisions, whereas in our line of work, you're just kind of out there, you know, and there's not necessarily your supervisor might not even be out. There might not even be a supervisor out. And so I always enjoyed that. I always enjoyed the opportunity to make my own decisions. Some of them weren't the best. Um, some of them were. But, but it was my responsibility, and I like that. Whatever you got yourself into, it's up to you to get yourself out of it. So before we start to wrap this up, if you wouldn't mind, would you just give our listeners a taste of, what, uh, of your second book, which I have yet to read. Uh, but I'm looking forward to it arriving in the mail so that I can read it. I, I burned through your first book uh, in about two days, uh, just in my free time. Sure. Well, Bad Guys, Bulls, and Boat Chases, that came out in uh, it's True Stories uh, of Florida Game Awards. That, that's, that's the second part of it, the title. Um, I spent three years interviewing working and retired officers from one of the state to the other. So it's basically their stories with four of mine uh, included. Um, and it's very dramatic. It's not, it doesn't have as much humor as the first book, um, but I cherry pick my stories. It starts off with the crash of Flight 401 in the Everglades, which at the time was the worst aviation disaster in U.S. history. Um, the first jumbo jet to crash, there were 176 people on board, 70, 101 perished. And so I tell it from the point of view of a two-month rookie who's on patrol in the Everglades alone, watching for deer poachers. He sees the plane crash. He ends up working survivor and body recovery for the next three days. I also interviewed a passenger and a stewardess so that I could explain to the reader or, or that the reader would understand what was happening in the plane. And I followed, and we followed them all the way through the crash, those two characters as well. And I also explained very stupid reason why the plane crashed it is a fascinating story and of all the chapters in that book that's the one oh my gosh it was like for i thought about that story every day for years I, I don't think about it now but for the first two or three years after the book came out that's how it affected me when i heard the story of these people that's how moving it was um it was it was a hell of a thing but but I tell her, but but the officer I'm talking about is Gray Leonard. He ended up being my supervisor later, and uh, but his is a good story, and he tells a point of view that has never been reported. Uh, National Geographic did a 45 minute documentary on it. Uh, there have been a couple of books written, so that's one story. I also include a couple of shootouts, so that you can now see just how bad things can get uh, when when everything goes south. Uh, one of them is a shootout in St. Augustine inside a sailboat. And another one is uh, one of our officers in Brevard County named Van Streety, who was shot six times by a madman with a 45 and managed to survive it. That's a survival story. Um, and he ended up being out of work for a year and a half because they had to reconstruct his left arm, basically put a steel rod in it, or titanium rod. 
but but the whole story is it, it's kind of fascinating. I've got uh, the one thing I couldn't include in the first book uh, was was some big time commercial trafficking cases, wildlife trafficking cases, simply because I hadn't been involved in it. Um, but I did in this particular case. One is the Lake Apopka with the gator hatchlings. Another is uh, some commercial pompano fishermen down in uh, near Pine Island, not far from Fort Myers. And in there, we also there's also uh, another hellish chase that two rookie officers have with these professional pompano fishermen. And so, uh, gosh, there's just a lot of variety in the stories. There's deer poaching stories and bizarre, some really bizarre things that you could never imagine happened happening to us but then again you know i'm kind of sitting in the catbird seat because i'm the writer and i know all these people or at least i've heard of them and so you know i just go and i interview them i cherry pick the best of the best so um yeah so it's a real variety pack well i really look forward to reading it here shortly Thank you. well you've uh, been very kind i will tell you that i really am appreciative of your of your interest um so as we wrap things up as we always do every week we do what we like to call the Under Pressure Outdoors Tip of the Week. And the Under Pressure Outdoors Tip of the Week is brought to you by the Ratchet Jacket. The Ratchet Jacket is a neoprene sleeve that covers up the either the metal part of your racket, ratchet strap or it can go in the corners of your load to keep your load from wearing on the strap itself. Um, but they're cheap and inexpensive and they're, they protect whether you're carrying your mother-in-law's china cabinet or your brand new motorcycle it's going to keep the scratches off of that from the metal and it's going to keep your straps help keep your straps from getting cut by sharp edges of your load uh, and then you end up losing that brand new motorcycle so go on their website check them out find them on facebook and order you guys some ratchet straps or ratchet jackets so mr lee what is your under pressure outdoors tip of the week Okay, so my tip of the week concerns tracking. And it just so happens, since I, I knew this was coming up, uh, I posted two photographs to illustrate what I'm about to explain to your listeners on the tracking page of my website. My website is bobhlee.com. So if you want to actually see what I'm talking about, go to the tracking page, scroll, to, scroll down near the bottom, you'll see the photographs. So here it is. It doesn't matter... Uh, if this if it's a, a dog a deer uh, a raccoon or a human the number one tip I can offer anybody in tracking is this when you're looking at a track on the ground always be facing the Sun the Sun should be shining in your face if the Sun is shining on your back you will it'll cut down by two-thirds your ability to see that track so if you want to try this out pick a bright sunny day put a fishing uh, foot impression in the ground and then walk a complete 360 circle around it and as you walk around it I want you to watch that track and and also be far enough away from the track so you don't cast your shadow on it and after you've completed walking around that track you will find the position that you can best see it is when you, the sun is shining directly in your face. And the worst position to see it is when your back is directly, you know, the sun is directly on your back. This technique does not work when the shadow under a tree, when you cannot see the shadows under a tree anymore. At that point, 
not going to work. But usually if it's bright and sunny, uh, yes, it works well. And I've got photos up there to illustrate on my website. So So I'm going to say for my tip of the week, um, and this is something I have personally done before, uh, the FWC in the state of Florida and any other state I've ever hunted in really, they're always... They all those states always put out that free publication which you can pick up at the bait store, Walmart, bait store, Walmart, Bass Pro Shops, wherever you go to get your hunting, fishing, outdoor supplies, and it's got the rules and regulations in it. And sometimes those can be a little hard to understand, and you may think from reading those, man, I just don't know. And it, I have never failed to not come to an answer where I felt more confident in my decision than by just calling, finding the local game warden in in the county I intend to recreate in and getting a hold of that individual or several individuals and asking the person in charge of enforcing said laws before I go and do this, hey, if I do this, am I right or am I wrong? Uh, in my experience, those people have been more than happy to help me do the right thing. I uh, would rather see that than have to catch me for doing the wrong thing. That's good. I think that kind of comes down to it, too. There's a lot of, uh, some things are a lot of officer discretion, too, in some of the decisions. Well, there, yes, there, there is some officer discretion, yes. Um, and that's, of course, you know, each officer is different, every supervisor is different, and sometimes they interpret things differently, but we hope that, my hope is that they all interpret it the same and enforce it the same. That's, that's, that's the uh, ultimate goal, you know, for, I think for any, anybody in law enforcement. I think my tip of the week, uh, being that we talked a lot about boating, is going to be always have a float plan. You know, let somebody that's back home at shore, you know, from the boat ramp where you leave, let somebody know, you know, where you're going, what you're doing there, how long you intend to be there, when you should be back. You know, if you're not back by this time, to go ahead and call and search. And that, so that if something does happen, somebody always knows where to look for you. That's an excellent tip. Take it from me. Because I've had to talk to many wives whose husbands were missing, either hunting or fishing, and they did not know where they were. So it can be very helpful if you leave that plan with the wife. That can, and don't think it can't happen to you. Being lost, getting stuck, boat breaking down, you know, flipping a boat on a stump. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can happen. And when it happens, it normally happens fast, and you're stuck. Absolutely. And, I mean, there's been many a times where I've been walking I've walked into the woods like in the morning when it's dark or even at night and then you're like wait a minute where I'm at and you get turned around and you realize that you've ended up walking in the complete wrong direction that you thought you were walking in the first place because you can't get dark and you don't even see anything around you correct and the simplest thing and everybody knows it is carry a compass but a lot of people don't carry a compass yeah you know but in Florida they don't think they need it but you know, because it is so cut up with so many roads, but there are certain places, particularly the swamps, if it clouds over, you can't work, you can't navigate by the sun. No. You, and, and in the swamp, 
It all looks the same. The easiest way I've found, and I have gotten myself lost, and I do carry a compass for this reason, uh, the easiest way I've found to get myself lost is blood trailing a deer that I've shot mm-hmm. just before dark, and that in that 30 minutes between sunset and last legal shooting light, you blood trail that deer in the dark because the whole time you're doing that, you're looking down at the ground. And then you get there, you find the deer, you're excited, and you look up and you go, I have no where idea where I? I am. <laughs> well, you know, I was going to say, in my first book, I write a story about a guy who got lost just like that hog hunting up in a swamp off the St. John's River. And uh, he had, uh, it got down to below freezing that night, so he had to lay down and roll up in leaves. That's what he told me when we found him the next morning. So there you go. It can happen, and it, because you have tunnel vision when you're tracking them, you know it's um, because it's, you're so focused. And then, like you said, when you get there, it's like, oh my, where am I at now? Right. Well, Mr. Lee, I really appreciate you joining us and, and being the capstone to our series here. Uh, I, and I would really like you to tell our listeners where they can where they can find your books and, and stuff like that. Sure. So. <clears throat> The two books are Backcountry Lawman and Bad Guys, Bullets, and Boat Chases. The easiest thing to do is to just go to my website, bobhlee.com. On the homepage, I have the books. You can just click on them and you buy them direct from Amazon here in Florida. Uh, you should be able to purchase them at most brick-and-mortar stores. Um, most of them were carrying them. I, I don't know what's happened after COVID. I don't know about the bookstores now. but So they, they uh, have been available all throughout Florida not and uh, even little museums and such as that will sometimes carry them but the easiest thing might be just to order off of Amazon and like I said homepage on my website and you're good to go well like I said I really appreciate you joining us tonight and if you guys have listened this long there's obviously something you've enjoyed about this so if you guys would go on to Apple Podcasts and give us a five star review uh, and don't just hit that far right star tell us what you think um, and if you don't like what you're hearing and you've listened this long, you you probably have a burning desire to tell me where I can fix something. So tell me that, too, because we're always looking to improve. So I really appreciate, uh, appreciate you coming on tonight, Mr. Lee, and uh, thank you guys for listening. And well, thank you. It's, listen, this has been a pleasure. I, I appreciate it. You have a great night. Thank you. Bye.